0: The cost of being salt in life, First Kings chapter 18, one of the great passages in the Bible. Um, I mean, who doesn't love studying about Elijah, right? First Kings 18, find, find your place in your copy of God's Word, and uh, let's jump right in at verse 8, I mean, uh, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. How long had it gone on? Do you remember? Three years. Three years. And and uh, the uh, famine and the drought was... Why? What was the reason? Worshipping idols. Worshipping idols. Exactly. So it's God's judgment on the land. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys, perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he'll kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before him I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezbel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire uh, to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your meaning. And call upon the name of your God, but to put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given him, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us but there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made and at noon Elijah mocked them saying cry aloud for he's a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And lifted up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode, and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. You know, folks, as Christians, we are to be examples to this world. Not only examples, but in the midst of it all, we are to be men and women of God. We are to love the Lord. And, you know, in the Scripture, we celebrate men and women who love the Lord. We celebrate men like Abraham. Abraham and Sarah who left behind their homeland to go to a land that God had called them. We celebrate men like Moses who chose to suffer with the children of Israel. We celebrate men like Daniel. Daniel went into the lion's den. Uh, The Apostle Paul endured beatings and mockings and being stoned and being rejected by his countrymen and all sorts of hardships so that he could get the message of Christ out. We celebrate people like this in the Bible. Great Bible characters. And you know, even in... More modern history, there's, there's figures like this. I, I think of some of the great men of the Protestant Reformation, for instance, that God raised up. There's Martin Luther and Zwingli and John Calvin who took very courageous stands against either bad theology or corrupt practices of the Roman Catholic Church of the day. And I think one of those corrupt practices, of course, was the selling of indulgences. The Catholic Church had St. Peter's to build and other projects they were taking on. They needed money. And so they would sell indulgences to the common people, convincing them if they bought these indulgences, either they or a deceased loved one uh, could be assured of less time to spend in purgatory. Now, of course, we know there's no such thing as purgatory. But the church taught that purgatory was this in-between place between earth and heaven. and, And when you died, you had to go to purgatory to finish being punished for your sin and to work off whatever remaining sin there was. And they said if you buy indulgences, you can save yourself or a loved one up to 1,902,202 years and 270 days. (laughs) And they had a little saying that went along with this. When they would sell indulgences, what was the little jingle? Does anybody remember? When the coin and the coffer reigns the soul from Purgatory Springs. Exactly. <laughs> you take your coin and toss it into the coffer and it jingles. You're buying your indulgence, a soul from Purgatory Springs. And so men of God like Martin Luther stood up against that corrupt, terrible theology and corrupt practices. But folks, do you realize because of all of these folks who have gone before, you and I have the gospel in our hands today. Godly men and women who have preserved the word of God, who've been God's instruments in protecting His word and protecting the church. So that you and I today can go to a church that preaches the gospel. Our kids, our grandkids, there are great men and women who've gone before us and we stand on their shoulders. And, and folks, many of them paid with their very lives. And, and we need to understand the sacrifices that some have made. And in some nations of the world today, sacrifices that missionaries are continuing to make for the sake of the gospel. Missionaries today in 2022 losing their lives on the mission fields that God's called them to. Courageous men and women. So the challenge is, are we going to be men and women of God today? Are we going to take a stand for the truth of God? Are we going to take a stand for the gospel? Are we going to follow Christ? Or are we just sort of going to give in and and blend in with the culture and go along with whatever's out there today? Are generation's going to be able to say of us that we were godly men and women who took a stand? Well, we're certainly looking at one of the biblical figures who took a stand. He took a stand for God in his day. And I want to repeat to you, as I did last week, that the spiritual tide in Israel was very low at this time. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel are in office politically, and they have done a great deal to turn God's people away from God. Last week, we read the end of chapter 16. I think that bears repeating. In verse 30 of chapter 16, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam and the sons of, of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal, and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal which he built in Samaria and Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Here's a wicked man and his wife who were in office. We're told that she's the daughter of Ephraim. The Jewish historian Josephus refers to Ebal as a king priest who ruled over Tyre and Sidon for 30 years. And so here's a Jewish king marrying a girl whose religious background was different from his. Something that the Jews were forbidden to do. Yet he did it anyway. And then what do Ahab and Jezebel start doing? They're, they're trying to erase the land of any worship of the true and the living God. Imagine this. Israel's God who's delivered them out of Egyptian captivity, brought them into their own land, given them the Ten Commandments, giving them the law, giving them prophets, giving them so much. They're trying to erase the worship of this God out of the land and they set up altars to Baal instead the Canaanite false god of Baal probably Ahab to some degree was trying to trying to marry together or blend together the culture and the worship of the Jewish people and then many of the Canaanites who remained in the land he He's trying to sort of do something to compromise and bring these groups together. Sounds like something people would do today, doesn't it? In fact, listen to what was just sent to me today. One news source, and I went and checked it out to see if it was legit, and it it is. Uh, They reported about a new poll that's revealed that most Christian pastors Believe whatever they want to believe, a blending of ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. That's according to the new polling from the Cultural Resource Center at Arizona Christian University directed by George Barnum. And, and the results come from the American Worldview Inventory 2022 that contacted Christian pastors all across the nation to understand their world views. And I, and I read here, quote, but a new nationwide survey among a representative sample of America's Christian pastors shows that a large majority of those pastors do not possess a biblical worldview. The pastors, in fact, just slightly more than a third, 37% to be exact, have a biblical worldview and the majority, 62%, possess a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. The report said among senior pastors, four out of 10, 41%, have a biblical worldview, the highest incidence among any of the five pastoral positions studied. Next highest was the 28% among associate pastors, less than half as many teaching pastors, 13%, and children's and youth pastors, 12%, have a biblical worldview. The lowest level was among executive pastors where only 4% have consistently biblical beliefs and behaviors. Uh, The article also stated pastors are more likely though than any other segment of the population studied by this same cultural resource center uh, to embrace this life philosophy. For instance, 37%, as I just mentioned, Christian pastors have a biblical worldview compared to just 2% of parents of preteens in the church. Other key population segments in the church, only 2% of men in the church, Uh, have a biblical worldview. Women, 4%. Whites, 4%. Blacks, 2%. Hispanics, less than one-half of 1%. And less than one-half of 1% among those who identify as LGBTQ. Even pastors. Syncretism. Blending, conflicting belief systems. It's a sad day, isn't it? And again, that's what Ahab is trying to do in Israel. Ahab and Jezebel are trying to blend Baalism with the worship of Israel's God. And so Ahab builds a temple honoring Baal in the northern kingdom of Samaria, just as Solomon had built a temple to God in the southern kingdom, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And, and essentially what Ahab and Jezebel are trying to do is erase the land. They're blending it at the start, but they're trying to get rid of the worship of Jehovah God and establish Baalism as the eventual state religion in Israel. How in the world have things slipped this far? But they haven't. And judgment has fallen on them because of this sin. First Kings 17.1 tells us, Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Folks, it is astonishing when we see how far things have gone downhill. I mean, just think about it. They've gone from entering the land under Joshua, and under Joshua, what was that great covenant they they made? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, oh no, you you can't take that lightly. God's a jealous God. He won't tolerate idolatry. Oh no, but we mean it. We will serve the Lord and serve him only. Joshua said, Okay. So they've gone from that to this. And then on top of that, here's Jezebel killing the Lord's prophets. And that's probably what she thinks is part of her worship of Baal. She thinks by killing the prophets of Baal's rival, Jehovah God, Then Baal will look with favor on her and her kingdom, and he'll end the drought in the land. He'll end the drought and end the suffering. But what Jezebel doesn't understand is she's serving a false God, she's serving an idol. And Elijah comes on the scene as a man of God and he rises up against what he sees here, the travesty of what he sees. And folks, again, what we read about here is just as real today and in a different way, of course. The names and all would be different, but it's what we see going on today. The culture pressured the church to be just like The culture instead of the church being salt and light for the culture. Well, first of all tonight, I want want you to see that uh, convictions have to be settled. Look at verse 21. And Elijah came near to all people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal then follow him. The people are trying to live according to two entirely separate world views. On the one hand, you know, they got, they got one foot in Baalism. And, and the other foot in the worship of the true and living God. They got one foot in each. And, and, and Elijah comes along and says, how long are you going to go limping between these two? They're not compatible. One's God, one's not. One's false, the other's true. You can't have a fun in both worlds. And so they were faced with a Choice. They had to decide what their convictions were going to be. They didn't want to do this. They stood there. Notice they stand there without saying a word. They were trying to do the impossible by living out of two opposing worldviews. They wanted the best of both. Again, it's just like people today, blended with the culture. We want the best that the world's got to offer to us and we want the best that Jesus has to offer to us. I think God would say to us, perhaps He would say to you tonight, how long are you going to go limping between two opinions? What makes this even more sad is we have a revelatory faith. What do I mean by that? Saying the Christian faith is revelatory. What I mean is, God has spoken. We believe God has spoken in the Bible, the Word of God. Christianity, in other words, isn't some faith that you and I sort of make up as we go along. We believe God has given us His revelation, His Word. And it's a settled Word. We have a book that tells us what God is like, who He is and the relationship that he desires to have with us. It ought to be a given that Christians possess, and it really ought to be a given that pastors possess a biblical worldview. That this book right here, all 66 books that make up the Bible, would determine what our worldview is going to be. You would think that would be a given. But again, sadly, it's not the case. We blend with the culture. We even begin to go along and compromise with those that don't know God. We allow them so oftentimes not only to set the agenda of the world, but to even set the agenda in the church. You know, Peter says we're to be strangers and aliens. We're to be like strangers in the night. We're to live holy lives. We're to live separate. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, come out from among them and be separate. Folks, we can't be salt and light by being just like the world. We've got to be distinct. Peter says we're to be ready to give an account of the hope that we have within us. People today have got to quit having one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And people have got to quit pretending to be Christians and really live the Christian life. Makes me think of the circus. The circus owner that he had a big ape that died. That was one of the animals people came to see. So uh uh-oh, he's not buying now. He's... He goes out and finds a big ape suit and hires a guy who will wear the ape suit and act like he's still an ape in the cage. Well, the guy in the ape suit takes a smoke break. <laughs> wanders into the lion cage. And here's a lion attacking this guy in the ape suit. He begins yelling and screaming, Get me up! And all of a sudden, the lion says, "Shut up, you fool! We're both going to lose our jobs." <laughs> a lot of Christians are like that, pretending they that they put on and take off their Christianity like a costume. You know, when it's suitable, they'll put it on; when it's not, they take it off. They want Christ, but they want the world too. And they think they can live in some kind of zone between the two with one foot in, in each kingdom. Folks, we've got to settle our convictions and live by them. And if we don't, they weren't really convictions to begin with. Well, we see the next step Elijah made. Uh, second, I want you to see, culture must be confronted with God's truth. Look at Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. Elijah come up with something like this? Where did he come up with this test or this experiment? Anybody have a guess? Anybody? Like Gideon? No? What? Why, why did why why do you think Elijah came up with this particular test here? God told him to. Look at verse 36. What's verse 36 say? When he's praying to God. You see there the, the last phrase of verse 36? What's it say? I've done all these things at your word. This scenario, this test that he's putting before the people and the prophets of Baal, isn't just some kind of creative moment that he's had, that he's concocted. God's told him to do this. He's following God's instructions. And notice... Where he says this test is to take place. Where is it, it to happen? Mount Carmel. Folks, that was God's doing. That's very significant. You know why? It's like the true God is saying, okay. They want to serve this false god Baal. I, I'm going to give their false god every advantage. Highest point in the land, Mount Carmel. A high place over near the sea. It was viewed as being a favorite spot. They believed that Mount Carmel was a favorite spot of Baal, their god Baal. Just like God saying, I, I, I'm going to give this God that you say, man, I'm going to give him home court advantage. And again, just, just like we, we said last week, what was it about Baalism? Did he, he, they believe Baal was the storm god, rode on a bull and had a lightning bolt in his hand as a sword and had female counterpart, Asherah. They make a pole, seek to find her. They would carve it into a female totem pole to sex, make it a sexual image. and They believed that Baal and Asherah had sexual relations and this is what brought fertility <laughs> to the earth. And in Baalism, they even had male and female prostitutes that would go to these high places up near the clouds. Let's get as close to Baal as we can. And they would engage in sexual practice. Believing Baal would see this, be pleased with it all, and bless the earth with more fertility. I think that, that statue, I think I'm seeing something. She had like 20 breasts on her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the oh, Some of the, the statues, the toe poles are Pretty crude. Pretty crude. Folks, they weren't supposed, it seems awfully, it might seem awfully cruel to you that when the Israelites went into the land, they were to drive the Canaanites out. But it wasn't cruel. As God said to Abraham, he was going to give the Canaanites more than 400 years to repent and come to him, and they didn't. They were without excuse. God said you either wipe them out or you drive them out. If you don't, what did God say the people were going to become to the Israelites? A sneer. And you're going to be adopting their ways and their worship and giving your sons to their daughters and your daughters to their sons. and, And you're going to bring judgment on the land. That's exactly what had happened. depraved paganism. I don't know any other way to say it than that. Baalism was a sex cult. That's essentially what it was. It was depraved paganism. And, and it's amazing that God's people had begun to blend right in with that and tolerate it. And then their tolerance went into acceptance and then their acceptance went into endorsement and their endorsement went into personal involvement and they're trying to serve God and Bill. They want it both ways. you see the application to today? The church has become like a frog in the kettle. Supposedly, you throw a frog in boiling water. I've never done that. I, hey, by the way, I like frog legs. They taste like chicken. But <laughs> I've never thrown a frog in a boiling kettle of water. But supposedly, if you do, those who have say it jumps right out. You want to kill a frog? Put it in lukewarm water. You just swim around in there, man. It's spa day. Spa day on the stove. And cut up the heat gradually. Keep cutting it up. Keep cutting it up. And you'll boil a frog to death. Many are saying that's what the church is. You know, years ago, some of these things, oh, the church would have said, "No way!" But just gradually, the heat's been turned up, and we've grown to accept some things in the past that we would have spoken out against, that we would have known was wrong. But many churches, many people today just accept these things. Human nature hasn't changed that much, has it? You know, the church is grappling with things today. I I don't think I would have ever dreamed that we would be in the place on some issues that we are today. And we can't have it both ways. We've got to make up our minds. Elijah confronted his culture, and I want you to notice uh, what he's essentially pointing out. False gods cannot save. False gods cannot save. They can't. People might build idols in their lives today. I mean not idols like you know go and build wood and stone and stuff, but people still have idols today that they erect in their lives and they think they're gonna they're gonna get something from what it is they're giving their hearts and lives to. They're gonna get peace and joy and satisfaction. It, it's not gonna happen. It's gonna be temporary. And then they're gonna be trying to build some other idol because the other one failed them and that one's gonna fail them too. False gods don't give life. They suck the life right out of you. I think the word of God would confront us today and ask us, where have your gods really taken you? Where have they really taken you? False gods can't save. Elijah just sits back and notice what he does. He just breaks out laughing. Maybe we need to laugh. At, if it wasn't so sad, some of the nonsense going on today, we just need to laugh at some of the nonsense going on today. <laughs> False gods can't say, but God is able to answer and deliver. And to illustrate this, we see what Elijah does. He repairs the altar. The altar of the true and living God has been torn down. Again, they were just, they were trying to erase any semblance of God out of the culture. Do you hear me? Those in power were trying to erase the worship of the true God out of the culture. So they had torn down uh, altars to the true and living God and erected all these false altars. So what's Elijah do first? He he rebuilds an altar. And he prays and asks God to send fire. And I want you to notice several things here. The fire of God failed for a man who was willing to separate himself from the crowd and follow God even if nobody else did. The fire of God failed for a man of God who was willing to take God at his word. The fire of God failed for a man of God who was uncompromising in his faith. Third, I want you to see consequences result from our choices. Verse 40. Some very serious... First of all, you know, you go back to the miracle itself. You know, fire and water aren't supposed to mix, right? Well, see, dude, he builds a trench around the altar. Dump water on. Do it again. Do it again. Do it still again. The trench is filled with water. Again, Elijah's doing all this at God's instruction. It's not a challenge for the true and living God to send fire. It's not a challenge for the true and living God to lap up every drop of water. And that's exactly what he does. And then the people see, I mean, look, look what they do. They fall on their faces. The Lord, He's God. The Lord, He's God. It's sad that it took this to finally get their attention. What's it gonna take for us today for God to get our attention? What's it gonna take? God had their attention now. And we see some very serious consequences. The false prophets were destroyed. Folks, again, they did this based on the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy said a false prophet was to be put to death. And that's what they did. They put them to death. How many can go up to the 400 uh, prophets, too? I don't know. for the 450 prophets. Right. Bad choices cost people enormously today. Some pay the price destroyed lives, destroyed families, destroyed marriages. I mean, think of all the things that wreak havoc on people today. And people are doing them anyway. <laughs> If, if you were in my position, you would know what I'm telling you is the truth. People, some people come to you today in the church and they'll say, Pastor, we know what we're doing is wrong. We know it's wrong. But we're going to do it anyway. And then years later, sure enough, their family's broken. Things are amiss. Sin has consequences. Folks, as a culture, we departed from the truth of God's word. And look at where we have ended up. We didn't want God in, in our schools or in the public square, you know, get prayer out of the classroom, Bible out of the classroom, take God out of the public square. You know, look at where we are today in some of the things the culture is battling against. consequences and obviously there's the consequence of the loss going into an eternity without God there's even the consequence of the judgment seat for Christians Paul says in 2 Corinthians five ten, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ Elijah was a man of God who rose up and finally said enough is 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 enough. You know. Was it popular? No. Was it needed? Yes. Folks, the need for men and women of God like this exists today every bit as much. Culture hadn't got, hasn't gotten less sinful, less corrupt. Again, disregard for God everywhere. And we're called to be salt and light. It'll mean being in the minority. Elijah stood against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtaroth, as well as the whole nation, apparently, that had begun. to to follow Baal, with the exception of 7,000 others that he would be told in the next chapter had not bowed the knee to Baal yet. But Elijah and those 7,000, apparently the only ones in the nation, the minority in the nation that has continued to, to stand for God. Staggering odds. Elijah was up against staggering odds. An overwhelming majority against him. Can you relate to that today, the church? Overwhelming odds against us. You follow the Lord and don't expect a carnival or a parade or to be voted most popular or most likely to succeed. We're going to be in the minority. And it's going to be hard. You may be blamed for what's not your fault. Ahab, when he meets Elijah, says, there you are, you troubler. Imagine this. Here's the king. The king and his wife brought all this trouble on the land and the famine as a result of their sin. And yet when Elijah uh, is met up by the king, the king points to him and says, you're the troubler of Israel. No, Elijah was the one who came with the only word of hope that what could turn them back. The world today may hate the church. They don't realize the message we're calling to preach is the message that they need for the salvation of their souls. Be counted. Live out your faith. I mean, it is almost a certainty that you and I are not going to be called on some, some grand public thing like this that Elijah faced. But what about in the office place when there are some decisions to be made and people in your department, maybe you're being told to go along with this or go along with that. You see, that's going to be where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You in your own little way, in your own little space, and me too, we're going to have to make decisions like Elijah. And where are we going to end up? Are we going to try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? are we going to follow Christ? When the chips are down, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to listen to? What are you going to do? Because folks, I can tell you, more and more and more, it's coming. Christians more and more and more are going to have to make some very difficult choices. We've been insulated from a lot of it. And I don't know how much longer we will be. There'll be some choices you've got to make. you going to blend in, go along, go along to get along, or are you going to be salt and light? Are you willing to be in the minority, or are you willing to take a stand? It's a choice that's coming. Especially for the younger people in here tonight. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's a choice that's coming. What are you going to do? What am I going to do?